Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, your New Year's resolution for 2024 was less George Santos. Do you remember that? I do remember that, along with going to the gym more often and trying <laughs> to be a kinder person. <laughs> okay, so uh, I, I'm excited uh, that we get to go over three on those uh, because uh, we're opening today with George Santos. George Santos back in the news. Some civil litigation involving George Santos. So first of all, I want to congratulate George Santos for being in the courts other than as a criminal defendant. Yes. Good <laughs> to see him on the front side of the V. Uh, George Santos is suing Jimmy Kimmel for copyright infringement, among other things. And I think that the most amazing thing about this case is that George Santos may actually have a good case here. He he says that uh, he was wronged in a number of ways by Jimmy Kimmel, uh, not merely editorially that he was, you know, the butt of bad jokes, but that Jimmy Kimmel committed certain torts against him. And uh, and maybe maybe he's right. Yeah. Uh, you know me, Josh. I've thought for a while that George Santos is a bit of a cousin Oliver, and I've kind of resented his <laughs> domination of the news. And I do kind of feel like he's trying to suck up to me by filing uh, uh, lawsuits against speech. But can you explain cousin Oliver to those of us who are under 45 years of age? Okay, that's just cruel. But yes. So the Brady Bunch late in their run brought in what they saw as a cute kid and to me looks like a miniature haystack uh, named <laughs> Cousin Oliver uh, that was supposed to re-enliven the show as a new cute kid as the other kids got older and more unfortunate. And right. it was widely seen as terrible, even in the context of the Brady Bunch. But right. at any rate, uh, Santos has that sort of same, we're going to bring this new character to the scene to re-enliven things, energy in my mind. But this case actually has some merit in my view. So the heart of it is that Jimmy Kimmel saw that George Santos was doing these cameo uh, gigs where he would record the personalized message uh, in exchange for money. And Jimmy Kimmel thought that this would be uh, funny for his show. And so he, using aliases, uh, had his staff uh, order a bunch of them and pay 400 uh, bucks each uh, for various comic and uh, sometimes pretty inventive ones. And then he ran them on his show. And uh, Santos's point was, well, wait, that's copyright infringement. Right. And so I, to give listeners a sense of the nature of this content and the way that uh, Jimmy Kimmel was using the uh, the cameo orders in order to poke fun at George Santos, there there was uh, one of these where he the, the request uh, that came into George Santos's cameo account from Jimmy Kimmel under the uh, pseudonym Christian, he said that uh, Christian, so-called Christian, uh, i.e. Jimmy Kimmel, made this request to George Santos. And the request was, hey, George, my friend Heath just came out as a furry. And I'd love for you to tell him that his friends and family all accept him. His fursona is a platypus mixed with a beaver. He calls it a beavapus. Can you say we all love you, beavapus? He also just got the go-ahead from Arby's corporate to go to work in the outfit. So we're all so happy for him to be himself at work and at home. Could you also do a loud yif, yif, yif? That's the sound beavapus makes as beavapus. Thank you so much. <laughs> and now we've said yif on the yif, show. Yif, yif, yif. A new low. <laughs> so anyway, the, uh, Jimmy Kimmel put in these requests, and, and crucially on Cameo, when you 
place an order from a celebrity on Cameo, whether that's Snooki or George Santos or whoever, you can either get a license for personal use because it's like for your friend for his birthday, or there's this option to get a commercial license for certain commercial uses. And Jimmy Kimmel and his production team, they requested these as personal Cameo requests. But then they turned around and they broadcast them on ABC and on various social media platforms. And so what George Santos basically says is, you know, you're violating the license, the terms under which I made this recording for you. I didn't get fairly compensated for it. Uh, and now I want damages. It's not a terrible argument, Josh, I've got to say. Uh, and there are two big components here. One is liability. It's clear that the copyright's been violated, that that the uh, that Jimmy Kimmel took these things that Santos created and broadcast them for his own profit and benefit. The fence is probably fair use, where you know you can make limited use of copyrighted materials for things like satire, uh, news commentary, that type of thing, and the, the fair use factors, which are all touchy feely and squishy are, you know, what was the nature of your use of the other person's work? What was the nature of the original work? How much of it did you use? And what's the impact on the market for this person to for their original use? So it's not self-evident to me that Jimmy Kimmel is going to win this on fair use immediately. Those could all be things that are disputed because basically he took these entire cameo bits by George Santos and ran them in their entirety on the air to attract viewers and make money himself. So uh, there's certainly a good argument that it's parody or satire, but it is not one that automatically immediately works. Then the other big question is damages. Okay. And the complication here is that George Santos didn't register these cameos with the Copyright Office until after Jimmy's uh, show. But there's a way where you can still get what's called statutory damages, which are much bigger, if you registered it reasonably soon after it was infringed, uh, within three months, uh, if it was just published. So it's possible that he could be looking for statutory damages, which if the infringement was willful, meaning if, if Jim, Jimmy Kimmel knew and intended to violate the copyright, they could be high. They could be up to statutory damages of 150000 per violation. Uh, the other type of damages, if he, if he can't show that he registered it in time, would just be he would have to show how Jimmy Kimmel profited and Jimmy Kimmel could be made to forfeit those profits or how he was personally harmed. So just as when I err, I know that a uh, merciful God will correct me. I'm hoping that our friend of the show and listener David Nimmer, the god of copyright <laughs> in the United States of America, will gently tell me if I've gotten this completely wrong. But I don't think this is a terrible argument uh, by Santos. I don't know that Kimmel can easily get away with this. You, you talk about willfulness there, and there's some bad facts here for Jimmy Kimmel on the willfulness issue, right? Because there were two episodes of the show on which they broadcast some of these things, that there, there was the December 7 episode, and there was also a December 11 episode. And after the December 7 episode, George Santos apparently reached out to Jimmy Kimmel and his team and basically said, hey, you know, if you're going to do this stuff, you need to get a commercial license. I want to be paid. And so on December 11, Kimmel proceeds to air more of the videos and then talk about how George Santos had threatened to sue him. 
and had demanded to be paid at a higher rate. And Jimmy Kimmel says, you know, uh, I sent him a bunch of crazy video requests because I wanted to see what he would read and what he wouldn't read. I showed some of them on the air. And now he's demanding to be paid a commercial rate. Could you imagine if I got sued by George Santos for fraud? I mean, how good would that be? It would be like a dream come true. (laughs) Such a fucking client. (laughs) It's just genuinely stupid. It's that meme where it's the title card from the news where it's the quote from Man Stabbed says, what are you going to do, stab me? Exactly. (laughs) It's exactly the meme. And it's basically a confession to willfulness. I think the key fact here is that Jimmy Kimmel is using this in a commercial way to make money. He's repurposing George Santos's stuff in order to get more viewers and make more money from advertising. That is not absolutely determinative to the outcome of the fair use test, but it is definitely a factor in George Santos's favor. And it's the kind of thing that in my mind means that it's not going to be easy to get rid of this case at a motion to dismiss or summary judgment stage, that it might have to go to trial if George Santos wants to push it that far. Jimmy Kimmel is in a money-making business, but he's also doing commentary on matters of public concern. And I mean, isn't that usually the case when you're having a discussion about whether some sort of commentary is fair use? Very often it's being published in a commercial channel. Yes. And so there is a commercial motive, but there's also the things we would typically associate with fair use. He's commenting on a political matter, a legal matter. And so I assume that's what, what Kimmel will say, right? I mean, you know, he's a he's a comedian and a commentator. And yeah, he, you know, he broadcasts on a commercial network. But that's where you have these conversations. That's absolutely true, that the fact that the platform that is running the commentary is making money is not dispositive either. I think here, though, I mean, Jimmy Kimmel got George Santos to create this content. He paid him to create it and then deliberately and willfully violated the licensing agreement. So that's why I think uh, even though it may come out in Kimmel's favor in the end, it is not an obvious call. And I'm not sure it was a great idea, at least not to use like the entirety of mm-hmm. the cameos. Uh, you know, if he just used a tiny clip, he might get away with that uh, more, much more easily. So Santos also has some other arguments here. He claims that it was fraudulent inducement um, by Jimmy Kimmel. And, and, and because he wasn't really Christian, his friend doesn't really have a fursona that he needs to be congratulated on. Yeah, but I'm not sure the damages are there because, I mean, he paid for it. Uh, it's, it's not as if he fraudulently induced it to do it for free on the theory that George Santos really likes furries. Uh, <laughs> so he got, I'm not sure the damage is there. He, there, there's a breach of contract claim. There's unjust enrichment, but these are all sort of add-ons to the main event, uh, which is the, the copyright. And of course, you know, this is a great op- uh, opportunity for George Santos to get in the news more in a not explicitly criminal context. So uh, it's all good for him. Well, so and that that's an issue for showing damages, right? Like, I mean, conceivably, Santos sold more cameos because this was basically free marketing for his cameo business, which making him more money than being a member of Congress ever did. So is that, you know, could it be that he'll show that, yes, you know, Kimmel breached the contract, Kimmel uh, infringed his copyright, but because George Santos actually made more money as a result of it, he has no damages? Yeah, that's a possibility to the extent George Santos has to prove actual damages. Uh, But he can also prove what profits Jimmy Kimmel made as an alternative theory. If he's found to be willful, then that can influence that calculus in a weird way. For instance, it could mean that uh, Jimmy Kimmel doesn't get to deduct his costs uh, in this. And uh, basically, 
I mean, it's unclear in the first place what effect this has on the market. So that's one of the fair use factors. And, and as you said, arguably, this may create more of a market for George Santos's work. It's funny, you know, the back when George Santos first went on Cameo, I guess around the time that Jimmy Kimmel was doing this, Sarah and I had a conversation about whether we should get a Cameo for you to use on the show. And, and we didn't go forward with it in part because we, we know how you feel about George Santos and we thought you might find it annoying. Um, but I guess now I'm glad we didn't do that because maybe we, we would have gotten sued. Um, but And it hadn't occurred to me that there was a copyright infringement issue here, in part because lots of people have done this before. Like uh, when, uh, um, when Dr. Oz ran for Senate in Pennsylvania, even though he really lives in New Jersey back in the 2022 cycle, um, John Fetterman, his opponent, got a cameo from Snooki. Uh, to his friend Mehmet, uh, wishing him luck on moving from New Jersey to try to get a job in Pennsylvania, but, you know, saying, I don't know why anyone would leave New Jersey, and it's a good thing it's only temporary and you'll be back soon. Uh, and so, you know, I guess this has been done several times in political contexts, and it is a funny joke to do to get, you know, to get a cameo that the celebrity doesn't realize what it's about. Are all of these people breaching contracts and infringing copyrights whenever they do this and publish these things? Like, could the Fetterman campaign have gotten in trouble for that? Potentially, but everyone is rises and falls on its own facts. And so for the Fetterman campaign doing that, the nature of his use, the impact on the market, and maybe the the amount of the work used are all going to be different. That's going to change. He, he did publish the work in the entirety in the Fetterman case. Okay. So, but the nature of his use as sort of a political call out and mockery, as opposed to, you know, in a, in a profit making context uh, is going to be different. That's going to impact the fair use uh, analysis. And let me just say, if you two are ever tempted to spend $400 to make me a mix of degraded and amused, I, I suggest a really good bottle of bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, noted. Let's talk about Alexander Smirnov. We talked about this last week, this guy who said that there was an, an effort uh, by Burisma to offer a large bribe to Joe Biden while he was still vice president um, that some Republican politicians had fixated on and said, you know, hey, we know the FBI has documents about this. Why aren't they saying anything about it? And then it turned out that the guy was making the stuff up. And now he has been criminally charged by David Weiss, the special counsel who is prosecuting Hunter Biden. This is a Hunter Biden related matter. He's now prosecuting this accuser of Hunter Biden's also for, for making false statements to the government making up accusations about Hunter Biden. Um, and so we now have an, an update on this case, uh, including that uh, when, when he was de detained, he admitted that some of the stories that he that he had about Joe Biden, he received from Russian intelligence. Yeah. So uh, Smirnoff was arrested in Vegas. Apparently, he was going to go on a foreign trip, uh, which is a good way to get detained as a flight risk, which is indeed exactly what the government is arguing for now. They're arguing that the judge in Vegas should keep him detained and send him in Marshall's custody to L.A. where he's being prosecuted. And one of their arguments, aside from the fact that he was about to you know, leave the country, is that he admitted uh, that he had all these foreign contacts. And one of these foreign contacts uh, the government refers to is the fact that he said, oh, yeah, well, some of that stuff I got from Russian intelligence, which is kind of a big bombshell politically. I think it's less so uh, legally for his case. I think he's already in the soup whether he made it up himself or got it from Russian intelligence. And I think he's detained either way. Uh, but that, you know, in a, in a rational world would be pretty embarrassing for the Republican members of Congress who pushed super hard on this stuff that he gave. Uh, it suggests they were 
well, not to put too fine a point on it, the useful idiots of the Russian intelligence. Yeah, and you're, we're getting the sort of fake but accurate arguments from from the likes of Jim Jordan saying, well, you know, the, let's focus on the broader narrative of corruption. It doesn't particularly matter whether these accusations were true or not, even though they thought these accusations were bombshells months ago when, when they thought that there might be something to them. So as a political matter, this certainly helps Hunter Biden and to some extent helps Joe Biden to argue that basically there's a bunch of made up charges being thrown around here. Does this help Hunter Biden legally at all? I mean, Hunter Biden is not being prosecuted over influence peddling, really. There's this this weird gun case that we'll talk about in a moment, and he's being prosecuted for tax crimes. I assume that, you know, even though the, you know, the real reason that people are focused on Hunter Biden is that he's the president's son and it's the proxy for fighting over some of these issues related to Russia, this doesn't seem like it really has bearing on his tax case. It really doesn't, or his gun case. Uh, I think it does help him politically, and it kind of reduces some of the pressure in Congress and some of the pressure on special prosecutors to find something out there about Burisma or about any of these other things that have circulated around. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. Um, but no, it does not help him with his present problems, although he is very vigorously uh, litigating those, Josh. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a motion that he recently filed in the gun case in Delaware. Yeah, to, to remind listeners, there, there's two criminal prosecutions of Hunter Biden. The gun case has been brought in Delaware because that's where he possessed this gun at the time that he was an, an addict, um, which is in theory a violation of federal law, though it's rarely prosecuted and the law might actually be unconstitutional. Uh, and then simultaneously, the tax case about willfully failing to to file and pay taxes in a number of years. That case is being prosecuted in California. They're both David Weiss. So anyway, sorry, uh, regarding the, the gun case in, in Delaware. Right. And so the premise of the gun case is he was an addict. That's the necessary premise. And uh, he's been treating this like a real case. He's been defending it like one, demanding discovery, trying to push things forward. And he filed a fairly incendiary motion to compel the government to give more discovery. And in that, in the reply, he's kind of beating them up some and calling them out for nonsense. So as an example, he says that part of the government's proffered evidence that he was an addict uh, is cocaine residue on a leather bag that he had. And they pointed out, well, they got the leather bag from a garbage scavenger who pulled it out of a trash can, and then they held on to it for five years without testing it, then tested it, <laughs> and still haven't tested it for fingerprints. So he's trying to portray the government's forensics here as kind of a clown show, which is not surprising because, you know, the government's big stuff is going to be like his confessions in his book and right. his video. He wrote a memoir like about that. being an addict. But he, he's he's trying to call them out as not taking it seriously because it's not a serious case is the theme I think he's trying to get. He also says he ridicules them because he says that uh, they claimed in their opposition to this motion that they turned over pictures that Biden had taken of lines of cocaine. And Biden points out Okay, first of all, someone else took the picture and sent it to me. And, and number two, more importantly, it's sawdust. Uh, so <laughs> it, it is sawdust cut into lines like it's cocaine, but it was contextually, it was the text was actually from Keith Abloh, uh, famous television physician from from Fox News Channel, um, who was sending helpful, supportive messages to Hunter Biden, encouraging him to stay sober, and was talking the, this artist who, you know, does work with wood and had to, you know, choose between his work and his substance use. And so the this sort of this art, artistic commentary where the sawdust has been cut into lines of cocaine. But in, in any case, it is not cocaine. And it is not it is not itself evidence of his use of cocaine. 
Right. And this type of thing happens sometimes when agents and prosecutors stray out of their comfort zone. So the investigators and the prosecutors going after Hunter Biden are not typically doing drug cases. Okay, so this is kind of like what would happen if a DEA agent tried to do a tax case. (laughs) There's going to be some mistakes. And and these guys uh, dealing with the drug culture are going to do some sort of uh, poindexter uh, misinterpretations of what's going on. But that's, you know, I think that raises the question, and it's a good question raised by Hunter Biden's team. Why is the government prosecuting this case? I mean, as, as we've discussed, this law has, you know, serious, you know, constitutional questions around it. It is very rarely prosecuted. And they have a much better case on these tax issues that they're also prosecuting. I it, it's, it doesn't make a lot of strategic sense to me. I mean, I guess, you know, part of it is there, there was this political pressure to bring some sort of prosecution around Hunter Biden. But you would think that, you know, even if you're bending to political pressure, that the way to do that would be to focus on the stronger case, which is the tax case. I think that's absolutely right. I, I question the prosecutorial discretion exercise here in charging the gun case when it is genuinely so rarely charged. It's often charged when some circumstance prevents more serious stuff from being charged for a really bad person. Uh, you know, they're in the middle of litigating its constitutionality. It's kind of sympathetic circumstances where he genuinely was an addict, and it's not like he knocked over a 7-Eleven with a gun or anything like that. And they've got a real legitimate, he did bad things and he's going to pay for it, tax case going. So throwing this on, I think, is kind of a, a somewhat bumbling um, yielding to political pressure that I don't think is a great idea. Is it about the just sort of stubbornness? I mean, the other thing is like the there's this sort of weird geographical stuff where David Weiss is the U.S. attorney for Delaware um, and the case arose out of Delaware. And this was the real offense that had the nexus to Delaware. And they were building this, you know, the the way that they were going to plead it out involved having Hunter Biden and entered some sort of diversion program related to this gun charge. They were able to hang their hat on the gun charge in order to get certain conditions on him related to his sobriety. And then everything spun out of control and they ended up having to prosecute. But you would think at some point you would say, you know, we were using this gun charge as a device. If we're actually going into a prosecution, it doesn't make sense anymore. I think that uh, also the big concern about not appearing political can be as corrosive as the decision to be political, because I think it's easy for uh, law enforcement to to get so wrapped up um, in, wait, how is this going to be seen instead of, well, would we normally charge this? What is the normal procedure for a thing like this? That they kind of crawl up their own ass and and that's how you get stuff like the lengthy discussion of why Hillary Clinton wasn't uh, being prosecuted for emails, which was very outside of norms. You get this, which is very outside of norms. You get all sorts of decisions because they get so obsessed with proving that they're not being political that they wind up being political. That's this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. Now, if you were a paying subscriber, you would get substantially more show. You'd get our conversation about Georgia, uh, more follow-ups on those uh, pretty wild two days of hearings about whether Fonnie Willis will be disqualified 
from prosecuting that uh, RICO case against Donald Trump and a variety of other defendants because of her personal sexual relationship with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor that she hired to prosecute it. And we also take a bunch of listener questions about that big verdict in New York, uh, the civil case brought by the New York Attorney General against Donald Trump and his businesses. A lot of questions from you about, you know, where Donald Trump is going to come up with the money, which he has to, you know, he, he can appeal, but he has to put up a bond uh, or cash of some sort to, to support that very large, nearly $400 million judgment plus, you know, over $80 million for E. Jean Carroll. It's a really large financial burden. And we talk a little bit about exactly what that's going to look like as he has some obligations to put that up. And if he doesn't, uh, what the state and the court can do to, to pursue that money from him. Um, so we think those are, are really interesting conversations. And if you want to hear them, I encourage you to go to SeriousTrouble.show for $6 a month or $60 a year. You can become a paying subscriber. You'll get that full episode. You'll get every full episode, approximately 50 episodes a year. Uh, and you'll be part of our community. You'll be helping to make this show possible. You'll be able to join us in our lively comments section. Um, and you'll be, you know, the, we, we have no ad revenue. The only way that we make this show is based on the uh, the support of, the, of those paying subscribers for whom we're very grateful. Uh, and we'd love if you became one of them. So again, go to SeriousTrouble.show and you can hear all the rest of that. Six bucks a month. That, that's a tiny percentage of the amount that Josh and Sarah were willing to spend to humiliate me. <laughs> and for all this content. <laughs> yeah, more of you subscribe than maybe we'd uh, have money for cameos and for legal fees associated with our misuse of those cameos. <laughs> <laughs> 